Well, good morning. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And in Ecclesiastes 12, we'll continue our study. We'll look at the first eight verses, and I do plan on, in uh, April, on a couple of occasions, uh, finishing up uh, Ecclesiastes 12 and then moving uh, to a a synopsis, uh, looking back and reflecting on the totality of the book and the things that we've learned from the Koheleth, uh, the preacher, the convener uh, of the assembly. As we look at this, I've entitled this message, and I suppose it's a teaching time, but it's still a message, uh, not for the faint of heart. So as last week, he focused on encouragement towards those who are young in the end of the text in chapter 11. Now he turns his attention and reminds them that he focused on their youth And then he talks about what happens after youth, and he begins to rehearse some of the uh, issues of life that all of us of necessity go through. And uh, it's a pretty grim picture and a pretty challenging picture of of life and of failing and failures and the aging process. There's so much that we can learn in spite of the fact that it is not for the faint of heart. And if you recall, as the Koheleth, the, the, the writer, the speaker, the king, probably Solomon, is writing. He's looking at life from a perspective that is under the sun. He's looking at life in, in, in a horizontal kind of way, in a horizontal perspective of failing to see the bigger issues in life, uh, the bigger joys in life, the bigger blessings in life. And Way back in the beginning of our study, we reminded you that perspective determines priority, how you see life, your perspective as you interpret the realities of life and the seasons of life and and the heartaches of life. That perspective will define your priorities. Your perspective will, will determine what's most important to you. And as those determinations are made and your priorities are shaped, your pursuits the, the thing that you put your time and energy in are the, are the priorities and the fulfillment of those priorities of life and, and those passions that, that develop that I have to have this to be joyful. I have to have this to be happy. I need this in my life. And those, those passions have inevitable consequences. That's exactly what the writer is dealing with in chapter 11 as he transitions into chapter 12. But he's drawing all of his comments to a conclusion in a very pointed and clear way. Now, let's get this out of the way right up front. Again, you can read the book of Ecclesiastes as as a man who is cynical in nature. He's just a pessimist. Life is terrible. I don't like it. Everything's hard. And I don't think that's how you ought to read the book of Ecclesiastes. You can read the book of Ecclesiastes from the perspective of uh, life is hard, so do what you want and whatever makes you happy because you only have a short go of it in life. Just do what makes you happy. A, a hedonism that says do whatever, do, do whatever fulfills the greater needs. I think that's a poor way of looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. And all the way back in the beginning of our study, I said that I believe that the writer, the Koheleth uh, Solomon, is writing as an apologist. He is saying, okay, this is the reality that we deal with, and these are the consequences of that reality. So, thereby, if you are dissatisfied with the consequences, 
You must find a different way. There is a better way. And that's how he ends the book of Ecclesiastes, fear God and keep His commandments. And if we look at it from that perspective, even though there is cynicism in the book, and even though there are calls to just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, there's a, a method and a means to his madness, and we will look at one verse today at the end of our study that will introduce us to a, to a literary device that, that basically says, here's where I started and here's where I finished, and everything that I've said in between has led me to this conclusion. And that conclusion, of course, is in verses 13 and 14 in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. As we look at this passage of Scripture, it will tie into uh, many of the comments <coughs> that Pastor uh, Andrew made this morning concerning joy, concerning anxiety, concerning life as we know it under the sun. But make no mistake, in, in these concluding chapters 11 and 12, and even throughout the whole book, the writer, the convener of the assembly, the Koheleth, the, the preacher and the teacher is saying, listen to me, life is short and I am offering you a call for sober reflection on the realities of life. We're going to do that as we look at chapter 12. Before we do, pray with me, please. Father, again, we thank you. I'm so blessed at the progress that you've allowed me to make, and yet still not, uh, still not good. I pray that you'd help me and sustain me to get through this text, this, this important text but most importantly, the principles behind the text that are so, so critical in the whole of the book of Ecclesiastes. Help us to see life from a perspective that creates priorities and passions and pursuits that are in keeping with how you've created us and what it is that, that truly brings a genuine sense of satisfaction in these few brief days spent here on this earth. And I pray that something today resonates with all of us as it's resonated with me, the course of my study, and that it would remind us of the things that matter most in a very balanced perspective, that you receive all of the praise and the honor and the glory for this study. It's been a good study, a hard study, a challenging study, but a study about life, important study, Father. Help us to grasp the lessons of the Koheleth in the book of Ecclesiastes and be changed. Speak through your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go back with me, if you would, first to, to verse 1 of chapter 11. And he begins that by saying, cast your bread upon the waters, and you will find it after many days. He's talking about investments in life. He is talking about investments in people. He's talking about uh, taking risks and doing good and, and sharing liberally with what God has blessed you with and given you. And after many days, it will come back to you. It is not a promise of a guaranteed result of your investment, sometimes you may be earthly disappointed. But there's some, some peace that comes from knowing that no matter how much someone might mistreat you or speak evil, after all you've done for them, there is some consolation and solace in the fact that you did it, and you did it for the glory of God, and the results are up to Him. That's what he talks about in the text. He said, cast your bread upon the water, and do you know if a tree that falls in the forest falls to the north or to the south? It reminds me so much of what Job says. Where were you when I set the world in order? Where were you when I, when I put this, this, this 
order to, to creation where the sun rises and the sun's… Where, where, where were you? And in the essence and the reality of life, we are, to, we are to invest in life, and we are to invest in people, and we are to seize opportunities, and yet at the same time, we must trust God for whatever comes from the consequence of our investment. Please know this, everything in life, every endeavor in life, everything you invest in, whether a nominal investment or a great investment, whatever you do has a consequence. That's just the painful reality of life. Everything you do has a consequence. And if you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer has, has revealed the painful consequences of his decision-making time and time and time and time again to warn us and to call us to soberly reflect and to not make the same mistakes that he has made. He ends the text saying, so if a person lives many years, verse 8, let him rejoice in all of them. He's calling us to a place and a position of joy. But let him remember that all the days of darkness will be many. Not all of life is joyful. Not all of life is bliss. Not, not all of life is blessing. And sometimes all that the life that you live under the sun in a perspective that is solely earthly is vanity. And he speaks to the youth. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. You have all the days of your life ahead of you. You don't know the cynicism of life because you've not lived and experienced all of the things that I've known and experienced. Let the good things in life cheer your heart all the days of your youth. Enjoy. He's calling him to, to, to a, a, a place of joy and pleasure for the common graces in life. We, we talked about some of those last week, a, a beautiful sunrise and a beautiful sunset and, and the beauty of nature and the beauty of, of just so many different things. He's calling them to, to just enjoy and, and remember that those things are, are fleeting. They don't last forever. And then he says, in your youth, walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Pursue the things that God has created you to pursue. But know that all that He's given you, He will hold you accountable for. Cast your bread upon the waters, because <laughs> there will be consequences. And after many days, it will come back to you. Unfortunately, He removes Himself from, from the, the encouragement and then says, hey, listen, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. Even in your youth, understand that life is hard. And chapter 12, verse 1, remember also your Creator and the days of your youth before the evil day come and the years drawn near of which you say, I have no pleasure in them. He seems to indicate that there's a window of opportunity for us in life to seize the blessings of life and to see the advantages of life and, and to see the common good and graces of God and life under the sun, and soon these will be taken away from you because reality is hard, and heartache is a part of life, and challenges are real, and you cannot avoid them. So celebrate and enjoy the good years, the early years, the years of blessing where there are no cares until the weight of the world is upon your shoulder. He is calling young people 
to a life of joy and rejoicing, even if it's in a common grace perspective. And common grace is the blessing that God gives to all people, even the unbeliever. Enjoy those things. He's not calling him to piety or some religious observance. He is calling him to, to remember that God has done all of this for your pleasure and your joy so that you might rejoice. So take pleasure in it. But death and old age, when you're speaking to young people, are often words without meaning. If you can take yourself back 20 or 30 years, and we could add a bunch of years to that for some of you, we were there. Don't weigh me down with this death and sickness and real life. I don't want to hear about that. If you've raised children, you know that, right? You walk to school two miles in the snow, uphill both ways, right? And you're trying to communicate to they don't want to hear that. It doesn't resonate, doesn't understand with that. These are, these are the best years. These are years where they don't have these cares. And, and, and the writer, Solomon says, remember your Creator. Remember to fear God in the midst of all of that. Sometimes, as he speaks in chapter 12 of death and old age, those are words without meaning. Sometimes, that's a direct consequence Chapter 11, verse 1, how their parents and the people most important and influential in their life live their life. Sometimes as parents, we look back and say, boy, if there were any do-overs, I'd like one. There are no do-overs in life. It doesn't mean you have to keep doing the same thing over and over, but there are no do-overs. There's always a time to change. It doesn't matter how old you are. If there is still breath, there is still hope and promise. You, you, you can change all of this. And as you look at your, your, your life, you need to be honest with your children and your children's children. They need to see that life is hard, but you still have a joy. As Pastor Andrew spoke, you're still able to rejoice. You're still able to look at the common graces. And I shared some of the things that were impressed upon me. You know, you used to look out and it was snowing. Oh, man, I have to shovel the driveway and then drive the work. And I was in a perspective where I could look and say, isn't that good? What amazing God we have. That's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Those perspectives are critically important. And listen carefully. You'll hear this adage, our mess is our message. Here's the problem with that. Everybody listen. You spend too much, talking, too much time talking about your mess and not enough time talking about your message. This isn't where you went wrong. Your message is about where it went right and how God intervened in your life. Do you hear me? That's what Solomon is talking about. So as he calls these young people to, to remember the common joys and blessings of life, he's calling them to a place of truth, a place of reality place of being able to make the most of the opportunities that you have in life before the evil days come and the years draw near, before life draws to its inevitable conclusion, and you say, I have no pleasure in them. The weight of the world is on your shoulders. Perhaps it's the waning days of life Perhaps it's the twilight and the days and the length of days that God has given you under this earth. Or perhaps it's just a set of circumstances and challenges. This is inevitable that these things will come into your life to distract you from remembering your Creator and having pleasure and finding joy in the simple things 
in life. And it seems like the more we go through life and, and pile up these earthly life consequences, the weightier these difficult things become, and they rob you of your joy. Listen to those of you who are young. Remember your Creator and find joy. Find the good things in life and be content in them. There'll come a day when you have no pleasure, verse 2, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. There's coming a time where this bright outlook and this, this optimistic attitude that, that I have the world by the tail and I can do anything I want to do and be anything I want to be, there's, there's coming a day when that dream gets shattered and the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened because of the heartaches and the circumstances of life, because life under this sun, although a gift of God and precious, and there's so much that we can find to rejoice in, we are not created for this life. And this life is hard because of sin. And that's just the way it is. And he calls them to say, before you understand through the heartaches of life that life is hard sometimes, and especially in those days when life is hard, and you get through those hard days, and there's no sunshine, just more clouds to rejoice to remember your Creator, and to find a perspective that allows you a place of hope and a place of joy. These challenges that He speaks of as far as the process of aging, these, these challenges that He speaks of as far as these difficult seasons in His life, the, the, these, these days of darkness will follow. It is inevitable that we'll all experience them, and they will even either make you bitter or you can become better as you manage all of those and see, even in the worst of times, the hand of God and the blessings that He has on your life. But if you see life under the sun without any consideration of a sovereign God who knows even which direction the tree falls, there's not much hope or solace or promise in these darkening times of life. Again, in chapter 11 and now in chapter 12, he's reminding us of the sovereignty of God and yet trying to juxtapose that against the mysteries of the life. L listen to me. Life is a paradox sometimes, and truth is a paradox. I, I get really nervous when people start talking about anxiety, and you should never have anxiety if you're a good Christian. Whoa, 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 slow the train down. If you're a real person, you will have anxiety. There will be cares in your life. You will be worried about your children and your children's children. It's inevitable. We can't avoid it. What He's calling us to is in those times to turn as quickly as possible to the hope that we find in Christ. Do you see the difference there? To think you're going to live a life where you're never anxious and you never worry and you never have a care is a lie of the devil, and he uses the pulpits of America to communicate that. Life is hard. Worry and anxiety is real because you're a human being. What He's calling us to is in spite of those things, looking to Christ, the sovereign God, and believing that a better day is coming. In verse 3, he enters into this kind of poem, if you would, not to convey information, but to remind us of the process of aging and ultimately of death. I love 
Kohala's sense of humor as he describes the different failings of the body in a very metaphorical kind of sense. There are some people who will take chapter 12 and say, well, it really doesn't have to deal with the aging process. It has to deal with eschatology and end times or some cataclysmic event, or it really doesn't have to deal with that. It has to deal with your, your marriage. From the traditional beginnings in Judaism, uh, right up until today, the common understanding of the next verses is a reflection on, in a metaphorical sense, the process of aging. Hopefully, it doesn't make you afraid. Hopefully, it gives you a little bit of a chuckle. And the day when the keepers of the house tremble, when you begin to lose your strength and your, your hands begin to shake, I, I went through a little bit of that in my illness, and it was hard for me to take a spoonful of, of, of yogurt, of all things, because my hand was shaking so much. What's the deal with this? What's the deal with this, Lord? What a thing to look forward to. I, I got better, but it's not going to always get better. Sometimes that, that trembling will get worse and worse and worse, not just because of disease, but, but age. We, we begin to lose our strength, and the strong men are bent, the backs are hunched over, and their legs are weak, and the grinders cease because they're few. You love a good steak as long as you can get them between those two teeth that are still left, right? And, and, and really chomp away. At, that's reality. That, that's just the way life goes. That's, that's this process that that is so built into to life, and we wonder why. Stop for a second and consider this. It has nothing to do with God punishing you. It has everything to do with the impact of sin upon the world. And we're all dying day by day because of sin. But God sent His Son to deal with that sin and to give us hope. So it doesn't matter how many teeth you have, if you have hope, there is reason for rejoicing. Solomon is bringing these things to a conclusion in such a, a, a clear kind of way. The strong men are bent, and the, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dim, that, that, that eyesight and reading glasses. Everybody understands that if you're on my age, right? Never needed those before. Why do I need them now? Because your body is aging under the weight of sin, but it's normal. And you can either lament this and believe somehow you can hang on to your youth and be caught in all these scams to buy these products that will stop the process. There's nothing that stops the process except death. How do you like that? Death will stop the process. It's over. It's over. But until then, he's describing life. The doors of the street are shut. Perhaps another indication of the ears or perhaps uh, simply challenges with internal body functions. When the sound of the grinding is low, it's an interesting phrase. Again, maybe referring to ears or, or perhaps the women who are grinding or have been grinding in the mill are few now because people grow old and they die, and nobody's replacing them, and, and the grinding is low. Yet at the same time, with all of these hearing challenges, you rise up at the sound of a bird. I can't believe these older folks are up at 3.30 and 4.30 in the morning. But what, what in the world? I used to think, what's the matter with these people? They say, well, it's the best time of the day. No, it's the time of day that you're up. I don't know if it's the best time of the day, the older you get, the earlier you get. Why, why does that happen? I, I don't know this to be true, but I wonder. 
I wonder if it's the darkened clouds and the weight of the world that you learn as you grow older. As you have a perspective of life that nobody has because they haven't been there, and you say, this life is not, not for the faint of heart. Life is hard. And you worry about your children. And you worry about your children's children. And you worry about your friends. And if what you believe is really real, you worry about the souls of men. It doesn't make for a good night's sleep. It keeps you up. That's part of the process. He continues. And all of the daughters of song are brought low. They're also afraid what is on high. Terrors are in the way. Things that you never thought twice about, you do now. You would walk up uh, an extension ladder 25 feet in the air, and now you're on the first rung of a step stool, and you're thinking, oh boy, I need something to hang on. That's life. This is the process of, of aging. That, that's reality. And even these things are a gift of God because you have some things that you couldn't have in your youth. But until you see it that way, this description is shattering. The almond tree blossoms, that white blossom on the almond tree, that white hair, if it's still there, gets whiter. The grasshopper drags himself along, not nearly as nimble as you once were, and desire fails, perhaps a connotation to that, that sexual life. But I think it's this. Listen carefully. I think this is juxtaposed against what he says in chapter 2. I had more women and concubines than anyone before me. Sex was a big deal. I've learned it's not such a big deal. I think that's what he's saying in the text. That was everything. But, but it's not everything. Why? Because man is going to his eternal home. And when you do, the mourners go about the streets before you in this procession to the grave. Why? Because the silver cord is snapped. The golden bowl, that heart, in, in, inward reality of life is broken the pitcher is shattered at the fountain and the wheel broken at the cistern. Not only is the heart at its end, there is no way to restore life to it because the rope that goes down and lowers the pail into the well that brings this life or this water that restores life, the rope's broken. And it's appointed unto man once to die and after that's the judgment. There is no control over this. We live in such a blessed time when it comes to medical things. But there is no resolution, and there is no treatment, and there is no solution to death. It is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment, the very thing he reminds this young man of in 11, 9, and 12, 1. And the dust returns to the earth as it was and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Now, one of the really interesting things in the book of Ecclesiastes is that you won't read much about the afterlife. There are two times in which, in, in one way, he kind of infers it, and in another way, he says it straight out. But it doesn't talk about eternity 
or the blessed hope of salvation in God as we know Jesus Christ today. He simply says here, the Spirit returns to God who gave it, a reminder that we are created by God Himself. So remember your Creator in the days of your youth. He's bringing us all together. And when He says it that way, He is saying, oftentimes we want to make these judgments upon other people in their lives, but we don't know. Only God knows the human heart, and only God knows the eternal destination. And here's something that I include in all of my committal services at the grave. We bear this body to the place prepared for it, that ashes may return to ashes and dust to dust, and the Spirit released from this body may be returned to the presence of God of all, the, or all of the earth, who will do right in His own eyes." Solomon says, here's one thing that is sure. God created you from whence you came. You have died. Now you will go back to that Creator, and He will have the ultimate and final say in life. Sobering, sobering reminder, and it is a dangerous practice for us to begin to say, I know this person's in heaven, and I'm not sure about this person, because you don't know the human heart as God knows the human heart heart. One of the things that keeps me up, you know, as you age, it's the people who sit among us who think they know, but they don't know. And they think they're okay, but they're not okay because they're trusting in all the wrong things, and their heart are far from God. It keeps me up. I worry about that. I worry about you. And then I'm reminded of this. What can you do about this, Murphy? Not a thing. I have to trust the sovereign God. I have to do what He's called me to do, and I have to leave the rest up to God. It's not my place to make that judgment. The only attention that I need to give to it is my own personal heart. Where am I? And where am I going? That is the essence of the gospel. But make no mistake, after this long litany of failures, your spirit will return to God who will do right in His own eyes. There is a payday and a consequence coming, so be careful how you cast your bread upon the waters and seize the opportunities when you're young before the darkness comes. Boy, there's a lot to learn in this text. There's a lot to know about this passage of Scripture. And if you truly believe that that's true, There must be an urgency that sets in on all of us to get the gospel out so that people know the truth, for it is the truth that sets you free, and you can be free indeed, and we know how. We know how. And Solomon has convened this assembly to say, I missed this most of my life, but as I've looked at all of what's transpired, here's what I've come up with. It reminds us in chapter 1 the sovereignty and the mysteries of life, and then he reminds us that a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. One of the hardest things about the book of Ecclesiastes, at least for me on a human perspective, is for everything that this man accomplished in his life, if indeed it is Solomon, and I believe that he is, more wealthy than anyone before him, more wives and concubines than anyone before him, 
Whatever his heart desired, he kept not from them. He had wisdom that came only from God, and he's the only one that had that wisdom. In spite of all of the opportunities provided for him, he still had to make some choices. The same is true for you and I. There's still choices that need to be made. What is it that matters most? What is it that life is all about? Coming to the painful reality that you're not going to be remembered. Next is what you will hear as you're placed into the ground and people's attention go to something else. And you say, for all that I've been through, this is it? This is as good as it gets? That's Solomon's point. It's not it. There's more to it than this. Pay attention. So he says in verse 8, vanity of vanities, emptiness, futileness, a chasing after the wind. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Now, there's a literary device that he uses at the beginning and at the end to the epilogue of this book, and it's called an inclusio, I-N-C-L-U-S-I-O, an inclusio, and you can find it often in Scripture. He began in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, vanities of vanities, all is vanity. He concludes in chapter 12, verse 8, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all of vanity. He is saying, life under the sun without God is empty and chasing after the wind, and everything that I've told you in between has been my experiment to make life work on my terms, and it didn't work. So pay attention, and hear what I said, and understand what really matters most in life, and it gets us back to perspective and priorities and to pursuits. And he's no longer talking to the youth. He's talking to those who've experienced the process of aging and perhaps have come to conclusions of life as we know them. And he says, so here we are. That's the story. This is what this has all been about. This is the end of my pursuit. And then he gets into the epilogue. And the epilogue is an amazing epilogue where he says to those who can still hear, this is what matters most. The God who created you, fear Him and keep His commandments because in the end, that is the only thing that lasts in life. None of this matters. It's the only thing that lasts. And here's the challenge for that. Solomon had much to rejoice in. He experienced so much that could give him joy. He lived life at at, at the pinnacle, and yet he was missing the most important ingredient. God is the author of life, only he has the right to take it away and then you shall be accountable to him. So he'll finish the book in that climactic kind of way, but between chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 12, verse 8, is this inclusio where he talks about his failed experience in an apologetic way to 
wake our souls from their slumber. You know, it's possible to live so as to make old age a very sad proposition. And you've seen people who've grown bittered and embittered, nothing but regrets and complaints in life, and they're miserable people to be around. If you're around those people, I just remind you, we usually select the people who are closest to us, who are most like us, and maybe there's a cause for you to consider your own life. If you're most comfortable with those who complain they got a raw deal, maybe that's what you're thinking. Read the book again. Read the book again. As we look at all of this, we can either make old age and all of these things a, 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 a woesome thing, or we can just take some, some pleasure and laughter and what did I think was going to happen? I'd have this full set of teeth before they put me into the grave? That's just not going to happen. This is just the way of life. Everybody goes through this. It is possible to live even to the very last day in a very beautiful way. And He gives us secret to that. Fear God and keep His commandments. Now, how many of you do that well? Maybe our mantra every day needs to be the conclusion after the inclusio, fear God and keep His commandments. That's what life is all about. That's what life is all about. That's what life is all about. Right now, counts forever. There's a quote from Seau in his commentary on Ecclesiastes. I thought it was so fitting. The author, Ecclesiastes, is both a realist and a pragmatist. He knows that misery is a reality in life. He's also aware that most people know that there are going to be difficult times. But Koheleth believes that this recognition need not be crippling on the contrary, that acknowledgement may make one appreciative of the pleasures that one can discover here and now, no matter what stage of life you're in, the present for what matters. And anyone who comes into existence, the reminder that life is a fleeting season and all that comes is vanity. And the sum total of this book, he is simply saying, you can live life to the fullest, or you can live with a bunch of regrets, but you have to live life, and everybody does it. So cast your bread upon the waters, and there will be consequences. And remember your Creator in the days of your youth, and the days of your trials, in the midst of your storms, and be reminded that even in those heartaches, right now counts forever, for He has made everything beautiful in its time, the writer says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. He has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, and also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of this toil, this life under the sun, for it is God's gift to us. And I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it to teach the people to fear before Him. That which is has already been, and that which is to be has already been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth.
The book of Ecclesiastes is a masterpiece of wisdom given by a man named Solomon in the prime of his life, reflecting on his failures, searching his heart for some place of peace and comfort, and realizing that none of that exists in this horizontal existence. It only exists if vertically we make a connection with God and learn that the most important thing in life is to fear God and keep His commandments. Now, I don't know about you. I've learned that in my life. I just have to relearn it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day because life is hard sometimes, but God is good always. Fear God and keep His commandments. God is the author of life. Only He has the right to define it and take it away. And at such time, we will all answer for the days that we spent the energies of life upon. So Solomon says in a hushed way at the end of this long treatise, please, I plead with you, fear God and keep His commandments. Nothing else matters. May we take heed as the listener to this wise and masterful preacher. Father, bless us, encourage us, challenge us. And may that be our mantra, but even more than that, our lifestyle. In good days and bad days, in bright sunshine and darkening clouds, in the middle of a storm like no other storm, may the peace of God in our lives prevail, and may we May we fear you. May we be obedient to you. And may we hold you accountable in a good way to the promises that you have made and the hope that is ours. The person of Jesus Christ in the midst of a dark world changes everything. May we heed the words of the Koheleth and may you be pleased, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your time.